Daniel chapter 1, we read the first seven verses last week, and now we finish the chapter and finish the story of Daniel and his three friends. Let's hear the rest of the story starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to David, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why would he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then David said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat at the king's table be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I feel like this message this morning should be delivered at youth camp because, and I remember as a, as a youth, uh, this being taught. Uh, thanks for bringing the only youth I think we have, Matt. So they'll, <clears throat> they'll represent our youth here. You know, it, the true thing is that when God starts working on a person to prepare them, he'll start really from the womb. We've seen several testimonies that they will be instructed from childhood and from youth. Actually, so much of what happens in a person's life in their what we call elementary years or then their student years, middle school, high school, teenage years, are really determinative of how capable and how able they will be to serve the Lord, especially in the matter of training and schooling and education and study, giving diligence to that part of their, of their lives, their social factors and their physical exercise and a lot of other things involved in a good upbringing, but nothing compares to the kind of instruction that a young person receives. And um, over and over in the Bible, you'll find that God starts with young men. Take, for example, uh, example, Samuel. Samuel was instructed from his youth. And all the way up, God works on 
these young people, shaping them, molding them. I did certain things in my teenage years that at the same time I was declaring and swearing to everybody that would ask that I was not a preacher and not going to ever be a preacher. My dad was a preacher. All my dad's friends were preachers and I just had about enough of preachers. And also I looked and saw they didn't make too much money. And so I was anxious to be an attorney. So from about the seventh grade on, that's all I thought about. So I took Latin and I, I, did, I took speech and debate and a lot of things like that in, in high school because I figured it would really help me in a life as an attorney. And I even had my college picked out, my law school selected and all the, the things that went with it. And uh, in my first year of college, I mean the first year, God did not give me one chance to escape. My first year of college, I was oppressed almost the whole year with the notion of God is calling me to preach. And this is not the way I planned it. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I was prepared for. And yet, the burden was upon me such that I immediately changed colleges, changed majors, and pursued then college and immediately a seminary training following that. One of the things that I did quite a bit in, in elementary, actually from about age eight or nine, up through college and into seminary was a program, a, a small but a very systematic and, and, and rigid program of scripture memorization. Now, I love the Word of God. I love the Bible. I love the things of God. I just didn't want to be a preacher because I just didn't want to be a preacher. You know how you just have this gut feeling, it's, it's a repulsion. And that's what I had. And, and it worked its way out through my whole life. After 10 years in the ministry, I left it. I said, Basically, they can just take this job, and I'm out of here. And I went back to school and worked on a business degree and went into business. And for 25 years, I was out of the pastorate. Now, I had small little churches eventually because the Lord continued to work with me. And then we came here almost 20 years ago as one of the assistant pastors after we'd been here for six years. So that's kind of my little life story. But I look back and I see all those things. I mean, the years in, I spent in Bible camp... Every summer, I went to Ringo, Louisiana, to the BMA Bible Camp and the Bible Memory Association. Every summer, when I got to be 15, I spent several weeks there as a junior counselor. Um, that was wonderful training for the ministry. But to me, it was just, basically, there was a lot of cute girls down there. The girls from Arkansas and Louisiana and Mississippi, cute girls. And I loved to go to youth camp. But the Lord was working on me. And He was preparing me in all these ways. And that's exactly what the Lord does with His servants. He gets them ready for whatever He's called them to do. It might sound a little crude to put it, but God's got a job He wants to do. It may be a lifetime job, say like Samuel, from his earliest days all the way up to his very last days. He was, he was ministering there in the tabernacle in, in Israel and was so involved in what God had done in the days of the judges, and then he was the one that inaugurated the days of the kings, Saul and David. God worked in Samuel all of his life. Samuel, Samuel was faithful to the Lord. But it may be that God's got a job to do, and it may just take a few minutes to do it. But he's going to spend a lifetime getting you ready for it. You remember Samson? He did most of his work in just a few minutes. God called him from the womb to be a servant and a protector of Israel, and he had one job, and that was to kill Philistines. That was his job. 
And he did it. He went out and played around, killed a few hundred here in the jawbone of the ass, and you know the stories. And then, of course, he fell into deep sin. But in his repentance, as he was grinding at the mill with his eyeballs punched out, there were just enough tear glands left for him to cry bitter tears of repentance and come back to the Lord. And as he ground away at that mill, now we don't know how long, several years maybe, he, he ground at that mill and was, was, was uh, chained to it. God was reworking his life. He had blown every good opportunity in his life. He had, in effect, wasted his life. He had, he had prostituted himself with a prostitute. But then God called him into that great pavilion where the five lords of the Philistine was having their big convocation and found the way to the pillars that held up the structure pushed them out, and when he did, he killed more Philistines in his death than he would have ever been able to kill in his life. And it was who he killed. He got the top dogs of the Philistine cities. He did a marvelous work for God, a lifetime work for God in those last few minutes. And that's, God, God works like that. The Lord told His people, they went through all of this privation back in the land of of Canaan, the Lord said, I will give you back the years the locusts ate. And that's what God's done for me. He's given me back the years that the locusts ate. A lot of years that they were just consumed in the famine and consumed in the pestilence and really were wasted years. A life of wasted years. But if God can get a hold of a young person in their, let's say, teenage years or maybe sooner, and mold their heart and their life and influence their way of thinking such that they begin early to learn of the Lord, to learn the ways of the Lord, to learn to serve the Lord, to learn His Word, to learn to pray, and to learn to do those things that, that they feel are, are, uh, they're compelled to by God's uh, uh, Word. The Lord can prepare that person. And that's what's happened here in these lives of these four young men from Judah. God is is getting them ready for the work they're going to do. And here's the work they're going to do. Last time we pointed out that these four young men were from Jerusalem. They were from the tribe of Judah. Probably the royal family. Although the scripture doesn't say, but it's very likely they were descended from the family of Jesse or the the lineage of David. But at least they were in the, the, the group of men young men who were uh, uh, of the nobility of Judah. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He brought in the very best of a particular royal family from a conquered country because he could take those young men and train them and turn them and reorient them into the Chaldean way of thinking. And if he did that, then they would be very useful to him. They would not only be mediators you know, between himself and his rule and the peoples that were conquered, but they could also be outstanding rulers themselves. And if they were capable enough, and these men, they didn't know it at the time, but Nebuchadnezzar had an idea and it did work itself out. Three of these men went on to become uh, involved in the provincial governments of the provinces around Babylon. In other words, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego eventually uh, took high office. Now, the, there is 
is a, a story concerning them and their devotion to the Lord, as you know, later on in Daniel. But here we see them at the very beginning. And they're there with their friend Daniel, who sort of takes the, uh, the leadership, and he's the one that's going to uh, serve. And as our text said, he would serve all the way up to the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So he will live through the entire uh, the Babylonian reign of uh, two kings. He will live through the, the Medes with Darius or Darius. And then he will live all the way into the first part of Cyrus's, who's the Persian Empire. So uh, the people that work on the dates, there's a lot of problems to sometimes get things coordinated with the first year of this and the second year of that. But when you finally get through with it, what it amounts to is David, I mean, Daniel lived through the entire 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. He was one of the very first ones to go into captivity, and then he lived into the reign of the king, Cyrus, that gave the edict for the people to return under Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and you know the story pretty well. So, so Daniel is our prophet. <clears throat> He's also a statesman. He's also a, uh, a um, leader of the people in, in, uh, during this, this period of the Babylonian captivity, this 70 years. And of course, as we pointed out, the reason it's 70 years is because the Lord's going to make up the times they didn't keep the, their annual Sabbaths. They didn't keep their Sabbatarian year. And so because they had not kept God's Sabbaths, He said, I'll take my Sabbaths and I'll make you rest. I'll put you into captivity. I'll take, take you out of the land. So this is what's happened. So now they're here. And this is the story of their, of their uh, um, inauguration and preparation in the Chaldean wisdom and the Chaldean culture, and that's what is, is, is here before us. Uh, there's one, one thing I want us to notice. Uh, we've already seen this phrase one time, and we mentioned it back there in verse 2, where it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And the Lord gave some of the vessels of the temple as well. Uh, that's the emphasis that you're going to see. The Lord gave. Nebuchadnezzar certainly conquered Jerusalem. He took captives. He was a fierce military man. Uh, he was a military man and with great uh, accomplishments before he became king, succeeding his, his father as king of Babylon. And he was uh, responsible for the, the tremendous rise of the Chaldean culture to conquer and the whole Babylonian empire. So, you know, you look at Nebuchadnezzar and you say, he's quite an accomplished person. Look what he did. Well, a little later on, we're going to deal with Nebuchadnezzar's uh, perspective and pride. But notice the way that Daniel puts it. The Lord gave Jerusalem into the hand of Babylon. The Lord gave. And then verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the, of the chief eunuchs. And then look over again in our text again to verse 17. And for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. That's what's going on here. This is not just coincidence. This is just not factual history, which I believe it is. Pretty sound history. But this is a testimony to the Lord's doing. 
The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is above all. He's in control of all. This whole period of time was in the plan of God, just as surely as anything else. God had promised them that for obedience, they would live in the land forever. For disobedience, He would drive them from the land. And this is now the second phase of the complete fulfillment of that. The northern kingdom had gone in the Assyrian captivity, and now in the Babylonian captivity here, the, the uh, southern kingdom, Judah, is falling as well. So, so whatever we talk about in the story, and ever how we tell the story and speculate as to how things were going in the story, let's never lose this perspective. The Lord's doing this. The Lord is doing this. And this is exactly what happened here. It said, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. This is Daniel, a young man, we don't know, but probably mid-teens, maybe a little later, but not, you know, not 35 or 40 years old. He's a, he's a young man. He resolves. Everything that was in Daniel's prior nurturing, ever how Daniel had been discipled in the ways of the Lord, and I suggested a couple of weeks ago that the king had, they had a curriculum for the kings of Judah, the, royalty, the royal family, and it was the book of Proverbs. And so Daniel had been schooled in that wisdom. But he knew one thing, and he resolved in his heart that he was not going to participate in the Babylonian culture, at least as far as the food is concerned. It's interesting he would select food because as a young person, you're very concerned about physical development and physical growth. And that's what we have here with these young men. These men I'm not saying they were bodybuilders, but the Bible talks about what they looked like. They were, they were without blemish, of good appearance, skilled in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, competent to stand in the king's palace, and so forth. They were, they were very uh, well-developed uh, and, and uh, well-trained, well-mannered, brilliant. And this, these were all just the things that Nebuchadnezzar observed in these men before they ever got to do anything. He's going to train them to do what he wants them to do. But this is just their, their native, God-given personal talents and abilities. And, and just along that line, I'd like to distinguish, if we can, it may be helpful as we, uh, especially as young people, as you assess your, your life and your calling, to make some, some, some subtle distinctions. One, distinguish between that which is a talent or an ability or a capacity the Lord's given you. Uh, the Lord did not give me the capacity to be a, a player in the NBA. Uh, just, just don't have it. Loved basketball, played it until I finally got cut in the eighth grade, and they told me, just get out of our way, Ron. We want to play basketball. But, I, you know, and I, I just, but, so, you don't pursue that. But God has given each one of us, especially young people, pay attention. And by, by young people, I'm talking about anybody that's young in his heart and wants to serve the Lord from this day forth. I want to be like Samson. Maybe your last day will be your best day. You want the Lord to use you even more. God's given you a lot of ability. And, and, and in God's good common grace, He's given tremendous abilities to, to a lot of people. Almost everyone has some uh, unique abilities or at least some, some rare abilities or some outstanding uh, abilities. And 
God takes those and uses those. He enhances those. But those God has put in you, and you can take those and use them for yourself. You can use them for Satan. You can just not use them at all. Just, just let them languish. And, and, and you can abuse gifts that God has given. But these are there. And they are waiting as to be used of God. And then another thing that you need to know is there is learning, training, study. Just your natural capacities alone may not be as useful as they should be. So they must be enhanced. They must be improved upon. The old Puritans talked a lot about improving. Improving your sanctification. Improving your salvation. And, and they didn't mean make it better. They meant build on what's there. And there it is. You may be the smartest person with a high IQ as a natural ability, but you never read. You never study. You never spend any time pursuing learning. And so even though you're bright as you can possibly be, you're not informed. And God wants us to put a lot in there. Now you can move more toward making a difference. The talents and the gifts that God gave you innately, you're pretty much stuck with them. They, they have a measure. But you can increase the measure. And then the Lord will help and the Lord will do as He did with these men. Gave them uh, the, these various abilities that they needed to have. You could go a long way serving the Lord just that much. Take your natural abilities, make an honest assessment of them, dedicate it to the Lord, do what Daniel's doing here, resolve, really get a perspective, make up your mind how you're going to live your life, what you're going to do with your life, and, and, and uh, pursue that. Then improve and study, but you're still not ready for serious use by the Lord. Sometimes we take young men especially and we see that they're bright and that they're very sharp and they've prepared themselves with a good education, university training, seminary training, and we say, ah, this man's ready to serve the Lord. He has the capacity. He can answer the questions. He's got ability. He can do a lot of things. And we see these men with ability. We see these men who are studious and it's serious, but one thing they lack, they don't have the endowment of the Holy Spirit. And to serve the Lord, that's where it really comes because it's not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So it goes beyond natural ability. In fact, the endowment of the Spirit of the Lord upon a person and upon a life wherein God has equipped them and made what they do in their strength and in their ability, God enhances it and makes the fruitfulness of it far, far beyond what it would naturally be. And this is one thing we need to look at in our own lives and we need to look at collectively in our church is that we're looking for people that have received from the Lord not just natural abilities, not just good, um, diligent, and studious uh, training and discipline, but someone who actually has received from the Lord special endowment, special gifting to do the work. And I take that from just this passage right here where it says, 
God gave the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God enabled them to get through the pretty tough three-year training course uh, in the, uh, and I read one commentary where he called it, I think it was Calvin, he called it a seminary. <laughs> uh, they were in training and the Lord helped them in their studies. He endowed them with their, the ability to master the material. Learning and skill. Learning is to know its skills, how to use it. Uh, that's really where, where biblical wisdom is headed. It's headed to a useful, practical skill in life. Learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And then the second half of verse 17 says, And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. There's that special endowment. Daniel was given all the wisdom learning and all of the training and skill in Nebuchadnezzar's school. But God gave Daniel another ability, a God-given ability, something you can't learn in school. He gave him the capacity to receive divine revelation. He gave Daniel the capacity to take the Word of God and in its freshness and in its newness, as God breathes it out, Daniel was one of these people. And Daniel's interpretation of dreams became really the key to his whole success. It was his interpretation of the dream we'll see coming up in the story, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and the thing that he could work with, that he had, had an ability beyond all human capacity. In fact, they made it very clear. We'll see when we get there, the other wise men told the king, said, nobody can do that. That's beyond human capacity. Nobody can do that because what the king wanted to do was not just interpret the dream, he wanted them to tell him the dream. <laughs> In other words, you tell me what I dreamed and you tell me what it meant. Well, you tell me what you dreamed and I'll tell you what. No, 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 no. You tell me what you dreamed, what I dreamed, and then you tell me what it meant. And that's, and that's beyond human capacity. It took divine endowment, divine help uh, for for God. And God sovereignly worked all of that to where he was, Daniel was put in a place to be able to do that. Remember, this was exactly the endowment that God gave Joseph way back on the other end of Israel's history, back in the early beginning in the days of, of Egypt. God gave um, Joseph the capacity to interpret dreams. And that was his uh, key thing that moved him along in his career and then also put him in the place he was in to be able to do what God wanted him to do. And what God wanted him to do was to save his father and his brothers from the famine and therefore keep the family alive for a period of time so that God could continue sovereignly, providentially work through all of this. So God's bringing all his grand purposes to fruition working in the lives of one single young person at a time. That's how God works. God raises up the person in the time that God needs them to do the task that God calls them to. And so this is, this is what's happened. Now, bring for the story here and we're done. Uh, it's an interesting story. They said, well, uh, you know, this food, by the way, if you're a vegetarian, this ought to be your text. You ought to take this one and run with it and just hammer it over everybody, you know, really go. But I don't think that's, we're teaching vegetarianism here particularly. Because what really happened was, they only did this, this test for 10 days. And you tell me what person changed their diet for 10 days would have a manifest 
an obvious superiority in their, in their appearance and in their features, in their mental, in their, you may, you may lose a few pounds, you may look a little better, you may feel a little weaker, but whatever you do, if you change your diet for 10 days, and especially can you make it 10 times, which I'm sure is a, is a poetic way of saying it was remarkably, these men, were, these young men were remarkably superior in their examination before the king than the other Chaldean uh, students were. 10 times. What, what can be done in just 10 days of eating vegetables and drinking water? Well, what happens is, I'll, I'll look at it physically. The first thing they were doing, they were not, as it says here, not defiling themselves. In other words, whatever the diet of the king was, you know it had to be at least two things. It had to be extremely rich and it had to be extremely plentiful. This is the king's table. And so as one uh, commentator called it, it was the land of swine and wine. And that, and that wasn't kosher. And so whatever it was about the king's diet that was repulsive or that was repugnant to Daniel, at least he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to eat the food and drink the wine of the Babylonians. Now there's a lot of discussion about the spices and the enormous amount of animal sacrifices that were used because they had these gods, you know, they had uh, Marduk and Bel and Ishtar, famous ancient pagan gods. And uh, so some have said, well, it, all this food, especially the meat, was offered to these idols and therefore it'd be a defilement like Paul discusses, you know, with the first Corinthian, with the Corinthian church there in first Corinthians about eating meat offered idols, how that you participate in idolatry when you do that. So that could have been one of the reasons that it wasn't kosher, it was offered to idols, it was too rich. But regardless of what the, the, uh, the real reason was, and it is incidental, the thing is that God worked the miracle. God took these men, and it was a manifest miracle. They had, a, they had an actual experimental group and a control group to see how it would work. These guys, the, the four uh, Hebrew lads, participated in this restricted diet one of the things here and you say well how in the world did this all happen well let's let's just stop on this point verse 9 and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs and this was a pretty serious thing the eunuch said you will have my head it was if I don't feed you the food the king has assigned me to feed you then I'm going to lose my job maybe my head or at least I will lose my position of authority this is a critical thing. And he kind of passed the buck. And Daniel didn't stop. He went not only to the, to the head, but also the actual steward that prepared and served the food. He worked with him. And it says, And the Lord gave Daniel favor and compassion. I'm going to stop right here. The Lord makes the way. The king commanded it. The man in charge of everything said, I'm, I can't do that. I'll get in trouble. But God found a way. He went right down to the grassroots. The very person that is in charge of making it happen was the person that Daniel and the young men found favor with in that office. And they were able to not only continue it during the test period, but because they performed so well on the test, as the text said, ten times better in every way than the others. 
It says they continued to employ that diet. The Lord makes a way. Daniel didn't know when he resolved in his heart he wasn't going to defile himself with the king's food. I don't think he knew how he was going to get away with that. I don't think he knew where he might be. Maybe he was saying, this is a place I'm going to take a stand because I think I'm doing the right thing in the will of God and I'm not going to back down. I'm going to take the consequences. And later on, Daniel has to face a similar situation and he takes the consequences. He's going to end up as, as brunch for a den full of lions. But at this point, Daniel resolved because he knew his God. And what Daniel never loses the whole time he is in Babylon, he never, ever loses sight of his God. That was the whole point of being reoriented into the Chaldean culture because you're going to adopt the culture instead of staying with the godly view and godly understanding of all things natural and supernatural. Daniel knew his God. He knew his God was powerful. He knew his God was righteous and holy. He knew his God was sovereign. He knew his God would make a way. And that's how he did it. To keep Daniel alive and functioning, prospering, and being very significant in this phase of Israel's uh, existence as a, as a kingdom, as a theocratic kingdom. God keeping it in process, fulfilling His ways. Learn to quietly resolve in your heart that you're going to do things God's way. You're going to see it from God's perspective. You're going to learn what it is and then trust the Lord to make that known to you, to endow you with that which you need to succeed in that, knowing that His purposes are always good, gracious. He is the one who's bringing it all to pass. We take a lot of comfort in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to God's purpose. That's not just a, a, some a general promise we can smear over anything we want to smear. It's for those who love the Lord. It's for those who are called. And it's for those who are working in their calling towards God's purpose.